and welcome to the Industry 4.0 Community Podcast, hosted by Walker D. Reynolds, sponsored by 4.0 Solutions and IoT University. Today we've got. Uh, we're going to jump right into it. No, no uh, announcements or anything. So today we've got uh, Dennis Brandle from BR and L Consulting in Cary, North Carolina. Uh, we've been trying to put this podcast together for, I think, two or three months now. Um, Dennis is um, a member of many standards bodies, has two or three decades of experience working with ISA and OPC. Um, I'm going to let Dennis introduce himself here in a second. But the, the purpose of the podcast today, we're going to have a conversation about uh, Industry 4 standards, specifically standards that apply to Industry 4.0. Uh, digital transformation, the the bifurcation between the most innovative companies in the world and kind of the standards they're writing on their own and and what's happening out, what has been happening over the last two or three decades. And and what do we see? When do we see those two coming back together? When when do we see a new version of uh, ISA 95 that applies specifically for all industry four companies that, you know, that, that's the thing that the audience, the community wants to know. And we're going to have a big conversation about that in the pre-production meeting. Dennis and I actually had a quick conversation about OPC. So we're going to, we're going to touch on OPC as part of this conversation. But the, the goal here, as you guys know, it'll be fully organic. Um, we're going to kind of see where it goes and, uh, and we have no idea how long it's going to take. So with that, Dennis, why don't you, uh, why don't you quickly introduce yourself? Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for your patience being able to coordinate this and get you on. Um, but why don't you go ahead and tell the, the audience who you are and why they should uh, listen to you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, Dennis Brando. Um, I have been actually in the industry, manufacturing industry and, and production industry for actually over four decades. <laughs> I, I have uh, degrees from uh, Carnegie Mellon University physics and uh, it's called measurement and control, which was actually because it was 1974, it was before we actually had robotics out there, but it was how you use computers to control equipment and make things work. First job was uh, to work on the last Apollo Soyuz flight and do testing with the Russians and, and the Americans as we made some final changes. And then on the space shuttle program, uh, as we built the space shuttle. Uh, this I've done that, uh, and I've also worked in industries. I worked for Shell Oil, built control systems that they used in their refineries and chemical plants. Uh, I worked for Texas Instruments uh, prior to being bought by Siemens in their industrial automation systems. Um, I have uh, worked for several different companies, and then for the past 20 years, I've been a consultant and, and been heavily involved in the development of standards. Many, many of the standards that are out there that are, that are called the manufacturing IT standards, standards that people use when they want to apply uh, information technology into the operational side and the operational area. So I've been uh, working on that, written several books on it, and uh, to help write several of the standards that people have out there that are working on it. So we'll talk about that, but, but when we talk about standards, I just want you to recognize the fact I'm an engineer and a scientist, I'm not an yeah. administrator. So we'll talk about standards, but I'm going to give you my viewpoint from a person who's actually sitting in the trenches trying to, how can I say this politely, get engineers to write English, okay. which is not well, something let, let me, that they do well. So let me ask you these two questions. So real quick. So you currently are a member and editor for ISA 95, right? 
I am currently a member of it. We've passed the editor editorship off to uh, some other okay. people right now. We don't try to keep the same person on it forever. Uh, but yeah, no, I'm an active member of the, of the 95 committee. Uh, also, the ISA 88, which is batch control. Uh, and 99. And work on 99, which is uh, in industrial security and, and do a bunch of work with, with several other organizations as well. IECIS know so those. So if you get so those of you in the community, you guys know that I'll talk about ISA 95 part two all the time. Okay. And, and, uh, you know, people will ask me, Hey, Walker, what standard do you use for say information and data model? Well, I, I, the answer is, is that depends. I mean, it depends on the organization. It depends on the function, but you'll hear me talk about ISA 95 part two all the time. And why is it that I, we use ISA 95 part two in unified namespaces to organize businesses. So enterprise site, area line, cell, and then functional namespaces, descriptive namespaces, et cetera. Well, the answer to that question is, is because most ERP manufacturers use ISA 95 part two to create their master data models. So when you look at how they organize a business, they are organizing a business based on ISA 95 part two. And in my opinion, it is a very effective part of the standard. It, it, I, I have never seen a scenario where ISA 95 part two doesn't apply to a manufacturer or industry. I've never seen where I couldn't use that standard and apply it, but the same cannot be said for lots of other parts of the standard. So I stress ISA 95 part two, but so, but so with that, Dennis, so since you were editor and, and you are a member, do you want to, will you quickly go over specifically, let's just stick with the first four parts of ISA 95. Yeah. So if you want to just say, hey, part one is this, part two is this, part, well, part two is basically how do you take data from really in a nutshell, the layman's terms is how do I take ERP data and how do I get it into manufacturing execution and how do I take manufacturing execution and get it back in the yard. Yeah. In a nutshell, that's part two. And There's many other things to Let it. me talk about the first four parts then. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. Part, part one, I mean, part one, when you, when you worked on this and we started in 1995, so you got to remember yep. it's been a while. Okay. And we picked up uh, information from what was being done at Purdue University and Ted Williams, who had written some of the earlier works in these areas. So uh, we kind of used that as a starting model. But it was never really a formal model. It was more to set a framework for how we were going to do the rest of the work. So many times when I teach this, I say, yeah, we've got some models in there. Yeah, it talks about a generic company, a generic enterprise. But bottom line, it's, it's, it's more an education so people who don't understand what goes on inside a company can understand some of the pieces of it. One of the things we we found out was when we started to talk to people when we went to a plant or we would talk to anybody at any level of the organization, nobody had a good view of how everything worked together. Right. They all knew their little piece and they knew how their piece talked. And they said, you know, when Joe does this, I take care of this and I send it off and Sally does this other, but nobody had a clue. So part of, you know, part one was just kind of to put some framework around that, but we recognized the, the real meat of the first work was going to be part two, because the biggest issue we had was that there were lots and lots of integration projects going on between the ERP systems and then the, the shop floor systems. And when did, when did part two, just for history, when, we, when was, uh, when, it when took did part us, two? We, and we started about 2000, about the year 2000. Okay. Yeah. And, yep. then, and then it took us about four years, three, four years before we got the good models done. But what we found out was that 
of all the projects that people were doing for integration, probably only 20% were succeeding, if, right. if, if even that many. Yeah. And they were always over budget and everything else, which was really a pain. And it was because that we weren't speaking the same language. You know, you would think that we would, but you had engineers and you had operations folks on one side, you had uh, logistics people on another side as an IT people, and they'd talk about stuff and it wouldn't have the same meaning. It wouldn't have the same, it didn't mean anything to those people. So we said, well, okay, we're gonna talk with SAP, we're gonna talk with Microsoft, we're gonna talk with IBM, we're gonna talk with all these, uh, these uh, Oracle and all the others and say, look, we're gonna come up with a way to describe the information that is needed on the factory floor and the information that's needed back up to the business side of it. And that's where we started. So we had to create terms and create names because we didn't wanna use one company's existing name. So we said, okay, we've got, uh, production orders, or now it's been expanded operations orders. We've got operational schedules and these sort of things, which go back and forth between the systems. Um, that gave us part two. The next piece we worked on was, and, and uh, you probably, you, I don't think you're a fan of it, but it's part three. And part three was, how does the magic happen? How does the magic happen? We get a process or production order or production schedule coming down. I'll use that, that terminology. And then somehow stuff goes on and we open valves and we close valves and we turn on motors and we close motors. What happens in between that? So as we went through the, the committees, we are we're interviewing people. We're talking to people. We're saying, what's your job? How do these jobs fit together? And it's always like, well, we get the schedules down and then somebody, or maybe a, a system, but somebody takes the schedules and says, okay, how do I do that on my lines? I know what my resources are, which the top level scheduling didn't really know. I got to right. break it down. I got to come up with a, with a, with a production, with a, a work schedule of how I'm going to do that work. Um, I got to know what my resources are. And then I got to create that work schedule. And then I've got people out there who look at the schedule and say, okay, it's Tuesday, it's two o'clock time for me to start this job, execute the job, collect the data. So part three defines the magic. What we discovered was didn't matter what kind of manufacturing facility we were looking at. Everybody was doing these same sort of things. You take the schedule, you break it up into the jobs you do, you execute the jobs, you collect the data that you wanted, you tra track that data you collected back to relate to the jobs you had to do. Uh, you, you manage the, uh, the, SOPs, the procedures, all the work, all those things. Uh, you you manage your resources. Are my materials available? Or are my people trained? Uh, all these things. Um, and and we found it, it applied. Not originally. Originally, we wrote it for production only. We said this is a production operation. You know, I'm making uh, tablets. I'm uh, you know make uh, making cars. I'm making something like that. But then we found oh, we can apply the same thing in maintenance, and we can apply the same thing in laboratories. And we and 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 other places. Um, we've had people who've done it in in shipping and dispatching. Um, there's a there, these sort of things. And we said, oh, okay, we got a standard model, but it can be applied multiple different places. The details vary, but the structure is still there. Somebody is performing these jobs. So that's what part three was. It's the magic. It's how you take something from a business level system and actually all the way down to, like I say, open the valves, turn on the motors, do all those other things. Uh, part four was when we finished that, we said, oh, okay, now we have actually a bunch of MES vendors out there 
that are trying to either acquire functionality as we have defined in part three, because many of them looked at it and said, oh, I'm only doing like these parts here. I'm going to go buy companies. I'm going to put these together. And then the, the end users were saying, oh, okay, I don't have a single monolithic system. You know, I'm not buying everything from Siemens or Rockwell or Schneider or one of these other guys. I'm, I'm piecing these together. So how do I make these things work together? So we took the same concept of creating the object models for the information that flows between the different activities in level three. So that's what part four is. So the idea then is it's detailed. It's more job orders rather than process orders. Process so orders, production orders are ERP. Two comments. Yeah. So when you, I want to go back to something you said at the very beginning, when you were originally talking to people, you realized the left hand never knows what the right hand does, right? You, you, yeah. and, and here to, to the audience, this is a, a perfect illustration. Early on in my career, when I became an architect, which was about 2012. So I, I, I worked in, I was in manufacturing for the first half of my career. So I did five years in mining and then I did two years in printing and then I did three years in steel, and then I did two years in tier one automotive. Then I moved to consulting. The whole time in the beginning of my career, I was on the plant floor. So, yeah. and I, I've told this story many, many times about how my dad told me I didn't learn anything in college and I need to learn from the people on the plant floor. So go find the guy who's got 30 years of experience, keep your mouth shut and learn everything that person knows, right? And, and, then, and then take your brain and figure out how to abstract that into value for the business. That's what my father told me after college. And one of the things that I discovered early on was I always wanted to know how everything worked. So when I, when I became a consultant, I, I learned while I was as a manufacturer, I always learned the entire business. There's a, you know, there's the manufacturing workflow, right? We sell stuff, we plan to manufacture it, we execute the manufacturing, we supervise our plant operations, we supervise our equipment, we inventory and warehouse it, we, get, we ship yep. it, we get paid for it, we do it all over again, right? That's what every single manufacturer does. What was amazing to me was that nobody, the only, the only thing anyone knew, like if you were in business development, the only domain you knew was CRM. And if, you, yeah. if I'm in planning or I'm, or I'm in finance or I'm in human resources, the only domain I know is ERP. And if I'm in manufacturing, the only one I know is either MES, GATA, whatever. Yeah. So I would go and talk to clients and I would say, tell me how your business works on a whiteboard. And I would say, how do you sell shit? And then how do you plan it? And, then, and, and walk me through the actual steps. When, what is the trigger point between the conversion of a sale of widgets to the planning of the manufacturing of those widgets, yep. including the definition of the manufacturing? And it was amazing to me how no one knew that. Nobody so, knew it. Yeah, you, you needed a room full of people. You needed a room yep. full of people to answer each of the individual questions. Right? Yeah, yeah. And, the, and, the, and the weird part about it is because this is the same, pretty much no matter what manufacturing company you're in, it's like, why didn't people see these patterns before? Why didn't they do that? So I think we got together with a really smart group of people on the 95 committee. I'm not going to include myself there, but I, cause I was, I was the editor, not necessarily the author, but we sat down and we went through it and we said, Hey, this is common. Why don't we just define this and say, look, I can walk into a factory, any place, ask somebody what they're doing and understand how it fits into a framework. So I can see how their part fits into the big picture. Okay. Right. Then I can walk into a company and I can say, okay, you're doing all these things. These things happen to be 
done ad hoc. <laughs> you don't have any documentation. People learn how to do it because they've done it that way. You need to document some of these. Or you're doing these things manually that maybe you ought to be doing automated. So people are using those models, the, the ones in part three, to say, okay, where am I strong? Where am I weak? How does, my, let me, let me ask you this question. I don't, I don't mean to cut you off, but I, I think well, this is important for the audience. I, I, sh, uh, I often wonder what motivates someone to join a standards body. So <laughs> why, why don't we start there? Why, why is it? Because I think one of the things you're going to talk about, we, we mentioned this in pre-production, that people need to participate. Yep. In, in, right? And people need to participate in the development of standards, right? And not enough people are. So let's start yep. with the question. Why? What mo <laughs> what motivated you? What, why did um, you even get involved? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I got involved in this. Uh, I, okay, so I'm an engineer, or scientist, engineer in training. Um, and and uh, I got involved, one, because I saw that people were doing stuff that I thought was really good, but nobody seemed to know about it. I said, okay, right. yeah, let's, let me help sit down and, 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 and work on that. Um, I realized that I can write reasonably well at least standards documents. If right. not, good technical uh, writer. Good technical, good technical writing. writing. Yeah, so that yeah. helped. And uh, I really got involved in it after almost, you know, 15, 20 years in the industries doing various things, like I say, working for oil companies and and small companies and aerospace and all these. And I said, oh, okay, maybe I can take some of that and I can help feed it back so people can be better. Um a lot of us get involved in the standards because we think we can add value. We think we think that some of the things that we've learned or are learned from others can be shared, and we're raising the standards a little bit. Is really what do, we're trying. Do to you do. think of an organization? Let me ask you this. We'll stick with ISA. I, I think we'll, we're going to pivot to OPC here in a second because I I want to okay. talk about there's a holy war going on, right? Yeah, but, yeah. All, um, all <laughs> yeah. Um, do you believe that an organization? If they adopted, and we'll just stick with S95 for now. Yeah. If they adopt S95 en masse as their minimum technical requirements for yeah. all smart infrastructure, that they could become a world-class example of a digital company in manufacturing and industry? Do we believe that the, yeah, you believe yeah, the standards are there? Yeah, I think the standards are there. Because I, I think what I want to point out, that the standards of 95 are technology independent. Right. Yeah. It really doesn't matter what technology that right. you're They're applying. Agnostic. They're technology yeah. agnostic. Yep. They're technology agnostic. What they do, though, is that they allow you to make sure you don't miss anything. And that's that's a key thing. When companies start up and as they grow and as they get bigger, they follow too much of traditions and they miss things that they should be doing. I have one example, for example. It was a, um, it was a pharmaceutical company and they were they were their biggest problem was they could never figure out how long it was going to take to manufacture something you know right. but when you're doing a pharmaceutical the manufacturing is only part of it the rest of it is the lab and the testing right. so what we did is we went through and said okay tell me on these models how you're doing all each of these different things and then we got to the one point and he said well you're in your lab which the model applies to labs you're not doing any scheduling or resource planning so you get all these tests that come in, which have low priority, and then the high priority production ones, you know, they're sitting behind there. So, of course, you're not doing it. We looked at them and they said yes, and then realized that they had a tool. They just never even turned the tool on to sort it. But they reduced their, their uh, process time variability by over 80% by doing that. So, 
I think, yes, if somebody follows those models, they're the best models that we have today. They let, let me, let me ask you this. apply good technology to it, then they, yes, they can become world-class. I firmly believe that. So here, here's a, a, a question just, and I, I, this is not meant to be a gotcha. So if you can't, if you can't answer these, uh, just say, Hey, I, I would need more time to, or more detail. Okay. Yeah. So, cause I, I didn't prep you. I didn't, and I should have pre prepped you for these. Um, so number one, I, I'm going to go, I'm going to do two outliers and, and, okay. and, and things that I I've observed in my career. One will be a, one is definitely going to be like an S 95 would be a, an outlier on S95. One would be an outlier on S88. S88. So let's do okay. S95 in the printing industry. So this is yes. one of the things I've, I'm a, I'm a huge proponent of event-driven architectures. That is our infrastructure should be a representation of the reality. It should not be an enforcement of a model that comes from IT. So instead of yep. predefining the model, what we should do is create it, an event-driven infrastructure that shows us what actually happened. Like what is what does it actually look like out there and what's actually going on? And here's an example yeah. of one that I I I struggled with in the in the early 2000s, 2006 7. So this is right after part 2 came out. There was basically nothing, there was no software that I would have said was part 2 compliant at that time. So mm -hmm. uh in the printing industry, I worked I worked in a manufacturer that basically created uh prospectuses for stocks so we either stitched it so we printed we cut then we and then the and then the stitching machines would say be 30 cells you'd have pages you know you'd pull one page and and you would stitch those together to give you a finished booklet or we would do binding which was like using glue to put put the book together one of the things that you would look at in those processes is i would have say eight stitching machines and each of those stitching machines would have 40 cells so 40 little cells where I could put stacks of paper in there. And as the book is moving down, we'd pull one, one sheet off, put an assembled book, and then staple it together at the very end, and we have a finished prospectus. The setup of those machines took forever. So, I mean, yeah. in, in some cases, it could take eight hours because all of it was pneumatic. The art in the setup was taking these little pneumatic yeah. hoses and guiding them so that they would blow just one page clear at the bottom right it would, the setup took forever yeah so one of the things that i used to see was let's say we get a breakdown on cell let's say we're using 30 of the cells and we get a breakdown on cell 21 and that and that and that's a catastrophic breakdown so what they would decide to do is instead of instead of moving that production from stitcher 2 to stitcher 3 what they would do is they would use the first 20 cells of Stitcher 2. Mm -hmm. And then what they would do is they would put a temporary conveyor up between yep. 2 and 3, and then they would use cells 21 to 30 of Stitcher 3. Okay. Yep. How would you, using S95, for example, how would you handle that change if, since most people implement S95, where they would predefine what the asset is. These individual yeah. cells are part, these, these cells are a part of a production line. Uh -huh. And, but now for just this one outlier, we're literally using half of one asset and the other half of another. Can yeah, you explain yeah, for yeah. the audience that, that? Yeah. Yeah. That's closer to more of the 88 side of it than the, than the 95 side of it. Uh, yeah. And it's, uh, uh, it, it's in the, in the 88, it, <laughs> 
the ADA follows a, a model which says it's happy path, everything works. Right. But it does talk about the fact that you need to do reallocation and rebinding of equipment. So you may okay. be running through a, re uh, a, a, a what they call a recipe, which in this case would be making the, a, the a book. binding of it, and say, okay, at this point I have to stop it, and now I got to turn on the other ones. Uh, but the uh, thing about what ninety five does when it talks about it, it says use this equipment. Remember, these are requests to use this equipment. These aren't demands. These aren't orders, <laughs> because we always felt it was the shop floor that was in charge because they know it. It's not somebody sitting in an IT department or a logistics area, somebody who, uh, some continent away, trying to say, oh, yes, you have to use this. So, so when organizations are doing that, they are, they are not operating under the spirit of S95. Yes, they are not. And an and example we have here, okay, uh, this, okay, this is making soda, making a, a cola type soda. It's yep. basically what happened was the orders would come down and they say, we want you to use these material lots of this sugar for no reason at all that they wanted to use that because it's in the warehouse. And so what would happen is if that sugar lot is in the back, that meant that the operators had to clear out the, the whole warehouse and get that sugar and put it on there. Extremely inefficient. It really didn't matter because you're going to run through the, all the sugar that day anyway. Right. Your, consu your consumption should be the event. It shouldn't right. be. Yeah, exactly. It shouldn't be. I, I agree with you. Right. Event oriented is, is the way to go. But remember the part three, uh, part two stuff, they are requests to perform this. They are not orders because, or the, right. because you know, they don't have the information to make the minute to minute event based decisions. So why do you think, so then why, because I would say that, that, that is the, is the, is more the rule than it is the exception in reality. That it, is it, more organizations are trying to enforce. I, I mean, we have one client right now, a big French multinational that really literally picks the lots beforehand. And then when you can't use them, it literally breaks everything. Like if they can't find the, the, the bat, the batch lot, then they literally, it, it literally breaks everything. It, 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 they have to go back to the planner and the planner has to reallocate the materials yep. before it, they can it's, consume it's them. Absolutely stupid. And I, right. okay, I'm going to, I'm going to place some blame here. I'm going to place some blame <laughs> on some of the big name consulting companies. Okay. Good. Who may have read a little bit about some of the standards and said, yes, we need to do this and we need to apply that. I don't know how many times I've been to a company where they said our big name uh, consulting partner said, we need to do this. And we would come back and said, is there a reason? that you have to do this, you know, okay, I can understand there are some industries and some places where you need that full lot tracking, you know, because of, of the dates and other things, but, oh, sometimes they just did it because they could, because they could make that decision. And I, I got to be honest with you, Dennis, well, I got to be honest with you. I've been working with, I, I've been working with S95 for, I mean, this has really been my de facto architecture since 2012, give or take. So 20, 2011. You are literally the first person. I mean, I learned something new in this podcast. You are the first person who's ever actually confirmed for me. I suspected that if I were sitting on the standards body, I would not, I would have said, no, event driven. We don't need to enforce that consumption. That what it is, is we just need to be able to collect. We need to order that consumption and yes. collect what the consumption was. Yeah. Um, you are literally the first person uh, that I've yeah. spoken to at ISA who has confirmed 
that that is actually what the spirit of the standard that, that is. is the spirit of it now uh, you know but you have to design a standard around worst cases right and in some worst cases they basically said yeah this customer requires these lots so you have to do it but if you didn't have that kind of requirement the consulting people who are working at the upper end said oh we're going to give you everything configurable so you get to pick all these things. Well, look, it's so not let me, the spirit. <laughs> let me give you this second example then. And I think I know what the answer is now based on your first answer. But so we have a we have a client we're consulting with in Europe. They um, they're an they're an aluminum recycler. So basically their process is and we'll just stick with their cast house. They, they basically create aluminum cast billets that are, say, 40 feet long and four by four, four inches by four inches. They're large billets. Yeah. So they take they take scrap aluminum of various compositions. They test them beforehand. They create a recipe of aluminum to create a billet. Yep. They they throw everything inside of a charge furnace, <laughs> and they start with a composition test. That is, what is the composition of the stuff we threw in there? Okay, that's test number one. They do a test, and then they throw in some ingredients to try and get to their get, get right. really close to their their yeah. composition. Then it takes, uh, let's say, a couple of hours for, for the casting process where they can take another composition test. They take a second composition test and they see how close they are to their lower spec limit. So the, how close are they to inspect? And then they, they, they want to put in one more set of ingredients, wait a couple more hours, do one more composition test, and end up with, I'm in, I'm in spec, and now we can go ahead and dump it and we can create our billet yeah. with, with the third final and one of the things that we asked the client was how often, so in an ideal scenario, you're doing your manufacturing operation is three composition tests. It's driven by three composition tests. Ideal scenario is I'm only testing it three times. On the third test, I'm in spec and we can go ahead and create the bill. What percentage of the time are you only doing three composition tests? And they didn't know. So we had to go back and look at their, te their lab data and we discovered it was only about one in five casts were Ouch. were three composition tests so yeah. within the parent and so this is more of an s88 thing but and, and yeah. actually the first one was too is apparently but how how does isa suggest that should be handled because if 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 in a perfect scenario it's only going to be three composition tests right how does how does isa say you should handle that process in terms of event management I'll give you, I'll give you my, my view on it because remembering all the people who were involved in this. No, we would loop. Very straightforward, simple loop. You know, you, okay. you, you loop back, you do the test, you say, oh, I need to add this or I need to go to this until you, until you finish. That's, you know, so you, you don't. Would not, so you would not say, you would, would not, not say three, three and done. Right. No. You would not say three. Right, exactly. Okay, perfect. So the perfect scenario is three, three is the goal through continuous improvement. But it is not what we predefine as as our definition of our manufacturing process. Right. As a matter of fact, I think three is too many. I think one is right if you get totally it right. The first time. In, in fact, the the goal should be you should be able to determine from the composition in the original test. Yes. If I put these ingredients together, I'm going to end up with the, this correct composition. Right. I agree with you a thousand percent. That, that, but, that's agree. Yeah. I mean, we're living with three because that's what. 
that, that, that was probably the least they could get away with. So, but, let, yeah. let, so then let me ask you this question. So I'm, I, I know ISA very well. I'm an ISA member. I, I, I've read every single word of 95 and 88. I keep up. With, I'm sorry. Yeah. I keep up with, <laughs> Uh, all of the announcements from the working groups. I mean, I, I do my homework. I, I know ISA better than the average person. Okay. But, if, but I would say people who sit on the working groups obviously know it better than I do because they're part, I'm not part of the conversations. So what do you say to the average layperson who the only thing they know about ISA 95 is it's a standard from ISA about manufacturing and how, and how can they, where should they start if they want to apply it? So, yeah. because the, the reality is, Dennis, is, is that you, we have a lot of people out there. You talked about the big consulting firms. You, t- you know, we have a lot of people out there who are a, a, applying standards yeah. like S88 and S95 who don't even know that the spirit of S95 is, is not an enforcement of some rule. It is a framework and a structure for being able to order something and collect what actually happened. Yep. Okay. What, what would you say? What would you say to those people? Like where, where do they get started? Yeah. To yeah. And, their and that, is, that is part of the problem uh, with, okay. with it. We, that, which is why we originally had this uh, organization it was called the world batch forum where we were, we were trying to do the marketing side, essentially of 88, a group of people were doing it that merged with Mesa, which is the manufacturing or it's now the men, the Manufacturing Execution Systems or Enterprise Systems Association. Um, That's one place. There's a lot of white papers in there that describe how you use these standards and the the things to get started on it. Um, There's also multiple books written by multiple people who are on the committees to kind of get those things started. Now, none of those are, are, how can we say this, uh, bestsellers. (laughs) None none of these will make the top 10 list of... uh, of nonfiction books that are out there. Uh, <laughs> but those are the places that I would start. The Mesa has their, their, uh, their library on it. And uh, ISA has some and some white papers. And now they're doing some more work in that area. They're doing uh, some tra- training modules as well. Um, I have to admit, it is not an easy thing to do. I've written a couple books myself. I will plug my books. No, you, you can look. You can, up. please go ahead and plug them. <laughs> yeah, plug them. <laughs> Yeah, uh, that one one's called Design Patterns. It says how you apply 88 directly because 88 is a design pattern. Just if you're familiar with coding, it's a coding says this is a way to do to solve a problem without having to reinvent the wheel. And that's what 88 is. It's a design pattern for how you apply essentially the logic to batch operations and how you structure your PLC code and, and DCS code. Um, and how you do that, not only in a batch system, but in the continuous processing systems as well, where basically they, you know, have startup, shutdown, switchovers, and all these other pieces associated with it. Um, so those are places to get started. Um, there's some books on 95 too. I just did uh, an update on one that Bianca Schrolten had done, uh, which was uh, on, uh, again, available through ISA. Um, on uh, how you apply 95, and, and to a large extent, it deals with part two, much more with part two than it does a deal with the other areas in there. Can, um, can I, I hate to say it, but it, it, we're engineers. We're not necessarily marketers. We don't know how to sell some of this stuff. Well, let me, let me ask you this question. This is a, and this is a point of enormous frustration for me, okay? And maybe mm-hmm. you can help here, here with ISA specifically. And we're going to pivot to OPC here in a second. Um, 
All right. So I teach iot.university i teach and i'm teaching engineers how to support digital transformation and it, and it, we start at the ground level framework and foundation first and you know what what are the general rules of digital transformation you look at the organizations what we've done is we've reverse engineered companies like tesla and amazon especially amazon manufacturing we've gone with what they're done and we've reverse engineered it how did you do this and then we then we take like volkswagen north america which is the only legacy company in the top 10 of digital maturity in our data set. And we've said, how was Volkswagen North, Volkswagen North America able to take a legacy company and make it a state-of-the-art digital company? And, and we reverse engineered that. What, it, what were the steps they went through, right? What standards did they use? Well, it turns out Volkswagen North America is the only one in the top 10 that adopted pre-existing standards as part of their digital transformation initiative. Then now they, they backed off and they kind of, they selected just the pieces they wanted and, you know, but they, they, they do use off the shelf standards, yeah. but Tesla doesn't. I mean, Tesla does use ISA 95 part two. So they do organize, you know, essentially the ontology of their organization comes from, or the semantic hierarchy comes from yeah. ISA 95 part two. Other than that, they're, they wrote their own standards. They just started from scratch. They didn't go to SAP or whatever to do ERP. They built Tesla Warp, right? They created yeah. one infra infrastructure. If you look at Amazon, they did a very similar thing with AWS. Um, the question is, and this is a very frustrating thing for me. I want to teach ISA 95 part two to students, but, it, and I'm a member of ISA 95, I, I'm a member of ISA. So I can go view the standards if I want to download the standard, I got to spend whatever, $500, I think, to download a printable. You know, one of the things that I think standards bodies need to do is they need to revisit their business model. They are looking at it, but yeah, and they have to figure out how to do this. They've got a lot of intellectual property, right? but, you know, you have to monetize it, but you don't want to keep people from getting it. You don't want to charge so much that it's not easily available you want them to use it yeah it's boy it's a it, it's a hard it, problem to solve. well where's it's that going let me where do you think that's going because right now that's a huge i was just having this conversation with rick Bellotta the other day about yeah. isa and how frustrating it is that if i want to just print one copy of isa 95 that's a 500 or 495 dollar expense i think or something yeah and i think they need to move to print on demand very simple print on demand um okay or and, and and software copies. Um, you know, I'm not going to say ISA is the only one that's having this issue. No, no, no. Every, everybody, they're all having this issue. Oh, IEEE, you know, all these other people. OPC yeah, has, this, has this issue. Yeah. Everyone has it. it but I think the, the key there is that uh, all of these standards organizations need to move to a much more industry 4.0 solution right. set than what they currently have. You know, you don't want to have a warehouse full of books. Because right. print on demand says you do it, and why does it have to be a hard copy? Come on, like guys, let's 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 do yeah, this. Yeah, you thing. can't even. For example, I mean, ISA spends all this time. Like, I don't know if most people know this, but if you were to do, uh, so I have the membership. I think I pay two hundred dollars a year, and I can view in my browser any of the standards. Right. Right. I think I think most of them. Now I don't think it's all of them, but I th I'm pretty sure it's nearly all of them. But let's you. But you can't take a screenshot. So say I wanted to just take one little snippet and I want to share that with another engineer. Hey, I need you to you. I, this is the part that this is the money quote for you. Use this. Yeah. 
you, I can't do that. I, I, you know, I can take my phone and take a photo of it, but I can't. ISA invests all this time in in making it very hard to <laughs> share the thing that you need to share. And, oh, and, absolutely. And, and, and it's and, even worse for IEC and ISO. Huh? Oh, <laughs> when absolutely. You, when absolutely. you take a look at this, yeah, you can, you can't get. Um, I think we should all uh, definitely be pushing them to print on demand. Uh, to uh, I mean, individualized PDFs are good. You know, it's like, right. okay, you've got one, it's got a watermark on it, it's going to be there, so somebody gets it. But uh, it, it's, it's, a, it's a mindset, I think, is what it is. It's yeah. that, you know, every copy has value. Well, not every copy of the whole thing has value. Oh, I know? totally agree. This yeah. little part that I want to talk to you about, yeah, that has some value, but it's not the, the value. The I'm, a, I'm a big proponent of land and expand. Yeah, I'm a yeah. huge, I'm a huge proponent of getting the value of your commodity in the hands of as many people as humanly possible. And when they want to monetize that value, that value, that's when you get paid. That's when you do it. Right. right. That's, that's when they want, when they are going to monetize the value you transferred to them, then you get paid. That's the land and expand. One of the things that actually the, uh, the open group, the open group for uh, uh, process automation, OPAF uh, is, is actually following that model that again, that's another set of standards, but it, deals primarily with the process industries, okay? And uh, they will, uh, you can take a look at the standards, but if you want to build a product based upon it, yeah, then then you've got to join, essentially, you've got to join the, the organization. So let's pivot. I'm going to ask you a question that we'll pivot to OPC here, which is, what is your relationship to the OPC Foundation? So do you, do you uh, sit on a working group or... I, uh, I'm on the technical advisory group, which means I get copies of all the uh, specs and the companion specifications that I get to look at. I have uh, written a couple companion specifications. I, mean, I haven't written any part of the base standard. I'm also on the IEC committee that gets right. the OPC UA stuff that converts it over into the IEC standards. It's uh, 40, what, what, is, what is that, by the way? It's, uh, uh, don't 40, ask me to remember 40, those numbers. I can never... I, uh... It's something, uh, something, something, something. 62, 264, right? I think it's that one. Yeah. Um, or, yeah, 62, uh, 62, 541. So for those of you, yeah. IEC 62, 541. Um, let me ask you this. It's kind of in conjunction with uh, ISA and, and OPC. What, what frustrates you the most? Like, you've obviously been part of writing standards for 30 years now, right? Yeah. Um, what frustrates you the most about that process? So either the process of, fact-finding and writing the standard, maintaining the standard, or also deploying the standard and getting, getting buy-in and getting it leveraged out in the market. What, what frustrates you the most? Like, if you could change one thing about that process, what would it be? Um, th this is going to sound really strange, but I really wish engineers would take writing classes. <laughs> okay. What frustrates me the most is I do lots of reviews of, of different standards. And the English on them is absolutely dreadful. <laughs> in terms of, in terms of, they, so they have to be rewritten and, and, and made readable. Um, and then they have to be maintained too. So that, you know, a lot of that is maintenance. Yeah. I am frustrated a little bit. The fact that uh, the, we are engineers. I used to work for Texas Instruments. Okay. Here's a little side here. I used to work yep. at Texas Instruments. Texas Instruments, we had a technical path. And for the longest time, I said, well, we need to have a marketing path. It's, it's not the fact that I just built the best mousetrap. It's got the right specs. People will buy it. No. <laughs> if nobody knows about it, they're not going to buy it. Yeah. No, you, uh, Steve Jobs, I used to say this. 
why was Jobs a genius? Right? Was he a technical genius? No, he no. was a te- he had he had very advanced technical fluency, but he wasn't a technical genius in any any stretch of the imagination. Where Jobs was a genius was starting with the customer experience and working his way back. Going, yes. d- you know, he's famous for the do you want this? Like marketing yeah. needs to be that simple. Do you want this? And That's if you right. can't if you can't put something in your hand and go to the customer and go, do you want this? Then you did a shitty job of implementing whatever it is you're putting in your hands, right? That was where Jobs was a genius. Where we fail as engineers, this is why Steve Wozniak needed Jobs. Wozniak could build awesome things. But if you know, if you look at really, really smart engineers, a smart engineer by default is going to over-engineer because yeah. it's, it's yes. way more fun to over-engineer than it is to under-engineer, right? You need the person who, who keeps you focused on do you want this? So which may, ask me, which makes me want to pivot to this. Do you, do you believe that the OPC UA standard and the ISA, let's say 95 and, and 88, just those two, that those standards are exceptional standards that should be widely adopted all over the world and that, the, and that humanity would benefit from wide adoption? Yeah, and I would add one additional one which is okay. the work from the ISA 99 committee on cybersecurity. Okay. Definitely an absolute. Um, yes, those standards. There is another one out there. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with it. It's the 101 work, which is yep. human factors, which talks about how you create screens and things for situational awareness. So your factories. By, by the way, up. just just so we're clear, 101 is my favorite ISA standard. It yeah. is It is the one I have no criticisms of. Um, yes, it's I, great. <laughs> well, 101 is if you look at how it is you build intuitive user interfaces, that is user interfaces that require very little training. ISA 101 is the way to do it. Yep. You know, we, yep. you, don't, you, don't, you don't take a training course to learn how to use an app on your phone, right? I mean, you just download it. It's intuitive. If it's not intuitive, no one's going to use it. ISA 101 teaches you how to build intuitive user interfaces where the learning curve is very, very short. And it semantically makes sense with your operations. I, I love 101. Absolutely love it. We yeah. teach it. I love it. So, um, so going back to business, yes, if you apply that. Now, uh, I like OPCUA for one particular reason. It's got an underlying object model in it so that I can talk about the objects and the events that are going on. You know, many of the other communications protocols and things that people talk about, I'm just exchanging packets, little, a pa- little packet of data that may not even have context associated with it. Um, I can't necessarily look at the thing that's exposing that and publishing it and say, tell me a little bit more about this piece of data that I've got. Right. Without, um, without objects, you won't have methods. You know, without yes. objects, you can't have a method because a method is a, an extension of the class of that object. And, and right. I, I agree with you that. I'm, you know, I'm a big fan of OPC UA up to L2. You know, I, I say, listen, o, OPC UA has a place on the edge. Oh, here's oh where, yeah. Here, here's oh, where I struggle. Yeah. Here, yeah. And I think that, struggle. You yeah, and I, it's not, yeah. it's because it's based upon the underlying event of a single object. Yet, as we move up to level three, we have objects that come and go all the time. Right. Job transactions, I mean, transactions that are not objects. <laughs> right. right. Exactly. So, uh, yes, I, I agree with that. So some, that's where I believe that you start to look at things like XML-based or JSON-based communications uh, protocols that exchange XML or JSON uh, messages around the system. And then it becomes very much a message-based system. 
you know, right. and, and the event is I receive a message, I do something with it. And that message may contain a whole bunch of information associated so with here, it. A, a but here's where I, here's where I struggle though. So, and, and I don't, I, you know, and again, you know, I'm going to mention Eric Barnstead. I've been doing this forever, you know, and I don't, I don't, obviously Dennis, anything I say here is my opinion only and Dennis doesn't, and I'm not speaking for Dennis in any way, shape or form. Um, here's where I struggle. Guys like Stefan Hoppy, right, who is, you know, he, he leads OPC and Eric Barnstead, who at Microsoft plays a huge role in, in, at the OPC foundation. They're huge proselytizers of OPC. Both yeah. of their positions are that OPC UA can be the foundation of your enterprise infrastructure, which is, in my opinion, preposterous. <laughs> I, I, I've tried it. It, the, it. it doesn't even pass a sniff test. But here, if people from OPC are saying, no, OPC is not just appropriate or best up to L2, then this is how the market gets confused, right? Yep. If, right, if this is how the market gets confused, just like at ISA, this is a, I, you, you are literally the first person I've ever spoken to who has told me, who has confirmed the spirit of, of ISA S95 is, you know, we, we define an order and then we consume events for that consumption. We don't, we don't, inf we don't predefine what should happen what we right. do is we we ask for a thing it to happen and it happens and, right and then yeah. it happens and we consume what actually happened you're the first person to say yes. that and this is part of where i think the con the confusion in the market come or the confusion yeah. in the market comes from how do we mitigate that i don't know because i have exactly the same the same opinion when i first saw opcua and i sat in these meetings i was down at the arc forum down in orlando yep. okay and, and they're talking about opcua and they say and it'll work all the way up to the top of your enterprise i'm going like no, no. It won't no <laughs> this is this is not it i mean first off it is real time in the sense that you know you're communicating real time and as you move up the enterprise you're talking message based you're talking events right. you're talking cues of things that have to go on it's completely right. different now they're trying to extend it and they're trying to do it but i i i agree with you there it, it's a great wheelbarrow but it's not a pickup truck Agreed. <laughs> you, know, right. you can do what you want you can what it's doing it's great it's perfect uh the other analogy is you know when you only have one tool you know, every, right. but my analogy, hammer, everything's a nail, right? <laughs> yeah. But then my analogy is if your only tool is, it happens to be a chainsaw. Okay. And you're trying to build a house. It works great until you're trying to screw something in. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, so let, let, let's do this. Let's, uh, let's take it home here. The kind of the, you know, now we've laid the foundation. We, we know why it is we should listen to Dennis. Um, we, we know what it is we're trying to say. And, and, I think we know what the audience is going to hear. And now what is the audience going to say is the most valuable part of this conversation. And hopefully this next segment is it. So I think a lot of us are asking, I, I know a lot of us, cause I, I hear this from our community all the time, where are standards going? If, if Tesla is doing X and Amazon is doing Y and the bulk of what Tesla and, and Amazon are doing is sort of going their own way and writing their own standards. And then, you know, you have, you have ISA over here, you got IEC, you got OPC, you, you know, you have very, very smart people who have very, very good intentions, who are, who have been writing standards for three decades. And right now we have sort of this divergence, you know, you yeah. have 
really innovative companies going their own way and not and only in only selecting pieces of the standards that work for them but but they're selecting them in a way where you wouldn't be able to just take the standard on mass and apply it to this organization yeah where where, I, where do we it, see them come back where where do where are standards going so that we will see an intersection between the most innovative companies in the world and the standards bodies that i think that's the question everybody has and this is and not a good answer Right, it's not a new problem, uh, no, okay. no, no question at all. I mean, I've, I, you know, having been in the industry for forty-eight years, I've seen these these sort of things happen. Um, the issue you've got is that when people go off and build their own things, they come up with great ideas, okay, but not necessarily widely applicable. Right, they're many times fantastic point solutions, okay. The whole goal of standards is to take point solutions and say, can we come up with generic solutions that will apply to someplace other than you? The only way that works is if those people who are involved in building the point solutions get involved in developing the standards. If the Tesla engineers never participate in any of these, there will never be an idea from Tesla coming into the standards. Right. If the Amazon engineers don't ever participate, there'll never be an Amazon idea coming in. Um, now, that being said, it's, uh, it's not necessarily a corporate decision that they do that. I'm gonna make a plea to the engineers that are here, <laughs> please. Right. If you have good ideas, if you want to make the world a better place, share those ideas, make sure that you have your corporate approval, but get involved. Take your good ideas in and put them into standards. Standards get rewritten every five years, six years, seven years as we bring in new ideas and new concepts. So, but we can't do it if you don't tell us what they are. If you don't say, oh, that didn't work in this area, we need to make a change, or we've got this really great idea that, that we can we can use here. I, so, I agree. Uh, I agree with you 100 yeah. percent. I, I, I do want to I want to ask a question. I, I, I wasn't going to ask this, but it just occurred to me because um, I agree with you 100 percent. I think participation is is the answer. Um, now, people will ask me, Walker, do you sit on uh, working groups? The answer is occasionally. Um, mm -hmm. Most of the time, um, what ends up happening is I'm moving at a speed that the group isn't moving. And, and, and so right, the, the, the group moves very, very slow. And, and so what I say is, you know what, maybe I'm not the person to sit on this group and someone else should sit there who, who, who can go at that, that pace. That's generally what happens. That's what happened with CSIA. I was on the industry four group at, at our IOT group at CSIA. And I just said, this is moving way too slow. I, you know, but let me ask you this question. So Arlen Nipper, who's one of the co-inventors of MQTT, he um, he and Andy Stanford Clark, you know, invented MQTT in the late '90s for Philips 66. By the way, there was just a big, you know, the 25-year anniversary of the invention, right? Um, Arlen Nipper, you know, he engaged with OPC, and, and I'm not, I don't want to pick on OPC here, but this is just an example of if you want to participate, some of the frustrations that people will express to me. And I want to get your opinion on how you think, because you have all this experience on these groups, how you should handle these scenarios. So mm -hmm. Arlen Nipper engaged with the OPC Foundation on the OPC working group, specifically Part 14 Pub Sub, which was, you know, recommends that we leverage MQTT for transport. Yeah. And, you know, at the end of the day, he got 
you know, Arlen's a very politically savvy guy. He's not like me. I'm a bull in a China closet. If I think he's what you said is stupid, I'll say, God, that's really dumb. Arlen would never do that. He's, you know, he's much, you know, he's read Carnegie. He's a lot softer. And even Arlen said, you know, he just threw his hands up and said, I, I have to go. I got to go my own way. How do you, how do, what is your recommendations to the standards bodies on how we avoid the voices that we need sitting on those standards, on those working groups from saying, you know what, the, either it's too slow or the power structure is, you know, out of whack, whatever it is, it's too political, whatever it is. How do we, how do we, what recommendation do we make to the standards bodies to conduct themselves in a way or the working groups to conduct themselves in a way where we don't lose those voices? Because yeah. I think this is a really, really important distinction because I agree with you. The answer is participation. But how do we maintain high levels of participation coming from where, where, where the behavior of the standards group or the working group is is kind of the is the antecedent for what's getting those voices to walk away? Yeah, and, and to a large extent, it's the it's the chair chairman of the groups, or the chair, yeah. or the vice chair, you know, the the person who's supposed to be running that meeting is the one that kind of sets the pace and 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 figures out who the voices are. Um, all we can do there is train those people better. <laughs> uh, that's really what it is. Um, it, you know, and, and I do have to admit, you know, standards go slow, but they go slow for, for kind of reason. Once they you should. come out with them, there's a lot of investment that goes into You can't have technical oh, debt in a standard. You right. got to make sure yeah. you get it right. And sometimes they take a long time. I, you know, there's a, there's a test. I don't know. You, you, the test of the kids with the marshmallows. Have you heard yes. of this test? Yes. Where, right. You put a, you put a marshmallow on there and you, and you, if you say, wait, say you can, if you, if you wait five minutes. You don't eat this for five minutes, you'll get three more or whatever, right? Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Well, if you're really working on one of these committees, the answer should be, well, let me see if I wait half an hour, will you you give me a bag? Because we really, you know, working on these committees is really a bit of deferred gratification. It just takes, unfortunately, uh, because you're not just trying to convince one or two people. You're convincing people from different companies that have different cultures, you're different dealing with people from different countries that have different cultures. You're dealing with the language issues associated with it. Um, many times when I was doing this, particularly on the IEC version of 95, I felt this was much more diplomacy than it was engineering, you know, and maybe that's what we should do. We should view it as diplomacy, not politics, but diplomacy. Yeah. Let me, let me ask you this. Here's a, one last question and we'll, we'll call it a day, which is this. One of the things that I've observed is if you look at, you know, um, man, you know, we're, we're, we live in a global economy and that's all new. I mean, that's, that's the last 20, you know, two and a half decades. And, and really over the last 15 years, we've become truly global, right? Yeah. Well, that has created a lot of huge advantages in our, in, in, you know, in, in our, you know, for all of humanity, but it's also yeah. come at a cost and one of the, or, or it's created some challenges. And one of yeah. the biggest challenges about globalization has been, the industrial nations are not all in the same place. No. So in terms of maturity, they're not in the same place. So if you're writing a standard, this is the, the big, you know, if you look at say the Germans, they're very, very big on standards. Well, they can afford to be big on standards because they're not very innovative, right? They're, they're very good at continuous improvement, just like the Japanese are, but Americans are way more innovative and we're actually really bad at standards. I would argue that relative to the rest of the, the world, we, we kind of suck at adopting standards, whereas the Germans do an exceptional job. Our yeah. role in a global economy in the United States is we create the innovation, and then the Japanese and the Germans in general pr- 
perfect it. They, they, they're the ones who are, they're standardizing, they're continuously improving. And then we, and then we all benefit globally from that, including American companies. It's amazing to me, the number of organizations where we've come up with an innovative idea in the United States, we've made that global, the, the, someone else has perfected it then. And then as American companies, we've adopted the perfection, you know, yeah. we, we kind of went our own way and every, you know, have all these various paths, but then we adopt the standardized perfected version of that later on, you know, a decade later. Yeah, let me, we're trying to do all these different paths. One of these is going to work. Right. And then other people follow that. And then we try it. But as a standards body, how do you handle the various levels of digital maturity globally? Like, so if I'm going to write a standard that, you know, if you look at the most advanced, so the Koreans are super advanced, right? In terms of their industry, right? Uh, the Japanese are super advanced. The Germans are super advanced. In the United States, where we have a combination of sort of the Wild West and super advanced, right? How do you write standards that are because your standards are not just for American companies; they're they're for no. global companies. How do the global. standards bodies handle that? Well, uh, you know, a lot of them uh, we we try to make you know uh, technology independent, but you know, some standards are technology, so you don't really have a choice right. on it. Um, those ones, um, you, <laughs> you recognize the fact that technology is going to change in five years. And what we tried to do also when we were working on some of these was not to look at where we are today, but where we right. thought we were going to be in five years or 10 years when the standard's done. Yeah. Okay. And people were out there trying so to do drawing, it. That's why drawing we, a vector, drawing a vector and saying, where are we going to be here and stay within exactly, that? Exactly. Which is why on the, the 95 part two, we did the object models. And then originally we we're looking, oh, we're going to do SQL or something. But then XML came out. And it's like, okay, we're going to XML. And now JSON's out. So we're moving right. to JSON. Standard still applies, but it, it does become hard. I don't know how many times I sit in the meetings. I say, that's not a standard. That's an architecture. Right. right. <laughs> that's an implementation. You got to stay away from standardizing an architecture. <laughs> right. Because those things, those will change over time and they'll change over what you're. And they're iterative. Architecture, architectures are iterative. They're, they're, yes. You take an agile approach to an architecture. Architecture grows. You build new building. You, you build new rooms. You, you yeah. update. You, you know, infrastructure changes. Architecture goes to infrastructure. All right. So with that, Dennis, so real quick, I, I appreciate you coming on. This has been a, a, a wonderful conversation. If anybody wants to get a hold of you, what's the best way, you know, hey, I want to I want to talk to Dennis about more about what he does, one of his books, whatever. How, what's the best way to get a hold of you? Uh, easiest way, email. Um, okay. And yeah, it's D-N-B-R-A-N-D-L at B-R-L consulting dot com. Okay. And Josh, will, Josh will include your email in the yeah. uh, He'll put your email. That's in the I love talking about the standards and these other things here. You know, yeah. having been in it long enough and now, uh, you know, slowly stepping out consulting, it's uh, it, it it keeps me interested. You you ever come out to Texas? I mean, you're obviously a former TI guy. Do you ever come well, out to I'm Dallas? Former TI guy. I used to live in Houston at Shell, for Shell Oil and okay. worked TI. Went down to Dallas all the time. Yeah. So I, I'd, some- I'd love to I'd love to have you out and 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 um, introduce you to our team and kind of take you through some of the things that we're doing and how we implement ISA 95 part two that in, yeah. in with our, our manufacturers and, and kind of get your feedback and maybe allow you to take that back to the working group. But uh, I'd, I'd love to do that. Hey, Josh, please. If Dennis, if you're open to that, I mean, you know, I'll pay for you to come out and, and um, you know, come meet our team and, and, and look at kind of what we're doing and get your feedback and take back what we're doing to sure. the group. If what you're city open to that. in Texas are you? We're in Dennis. We're in Dallas. We're in uh, Carroll. 
That's yeah, easy we're, we're we're literally 15 minutes from TI over in Richardson. Uh huh. Yeah. So awesome. All right, Dennis, I appreciate you coming on. Um, if you guys want to know more about Dennis, go ahead and shoot him an email, find him on LinkedIn. Um, and, uh, I like subscribe, comment down below, please. Um, and I will see you in the next one. Thank you.